Today on Ag News Daily. The SigFox technology could be installed um, in an individual farm because it's uh, relatively inexpensive to install and provide the farmer with this excellent coverage. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is a Tech Tuesday here on the Ag News Daily Podcast. My name is Delaney Howell, joined by my co-hosts, Mike Pearson and Madison Honkamp. Guys, it's pretty nice outside today. It is a beautiful day, Delaney Howell. I tell you what, it is gorgeous. I've been outside. We've got the auctioneer here at the farm getting everything ready for the uh, farm sale on Saturday. And it's not a bad day to have to be working outside. Yeah, it's not a bad day for you not to have air conditioning. No, it's currently 72 degrees in my house, which is where I'd keep oh, it well, heck. if I had air conditioning. <laughs> no so kidding. I'm happy as a clam. I would be too. Happy as a pig in poop. <laughs> a pig in the mud. I, I, yeah, yeah, I saved it. I made it PG so we can retain our clean rating on mm. iTunes. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, I tell you what, Madison, what are you up to today? Um, you know, it is so nice here. It's really weird for the end of July. It's really making me want football season and living back in Ames. And and I'm actually really excited for school to start. So that's just been how I've been today with the cool weather. Madison, I tell you what, I am also looking forward to football season and some cooler weather. But I will not be cheering for Iowa State. See, you, you just have to cheer for the good cardinal and gold. That's the only one that matters. <laughs> I'm a black and gold fan. I'll cheer for the I'll cheer for the uh, the Cyclones as long as they're not playing Iowa. So just not on I think the game September 14th. I think that's right. I'm going I to it. So. I hope it's that weekend. That's what I got it marked off on my calendar. Yes, it's well, in Ames. Since- the University of Iowa does so much to support Iowa agriculture. I am not saying, emoji. I know, I know that argument, but we just grew up as Hawkeye fans because it was kind of in our backyard. Yep, yep, yep. Well, you know what, speaking of backyard, the second largest economy in the Americas is not actually right in our backyard, but it is compared to some other places, and that's Brazil. And there was an announcement by President Trump earlier today, we don't have a whole lot of details on it. But he said, quote, at a press conference, we are going to work on a free trade agreement with Brazil. Uh, No other deals or no other details, I should say. But um, Secretary of State uh, or excuse me, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross is down in Sao Paulo today talking to business leaders. And he's going to meet with Brazil's president, Jair Bolsonaro, on Wednesday and I guess tomorrow. So this uh, appears to be maybe a way to set the stage or at least maybe set up some expectations as to what we could expect to come out of this meeting uh, tomorrow. All right. They're meeting in person tomorrow? Um, Bolsonaro and uh, Wilbur Ross are, yes. Oh, well, it sounds like there's lots of trade meetings going on this week because we know negotiators are in Shanghai. They head home tomorrow-ish. I think uh, technically it would be tomorrow in U.S. time, but they head home and then are meeting with the Japanese later this week, and now we've got Brazilian meetings. So that's uh, that's going on. Yeah, kind of the hat trick of uh, trade talks. We'll see if we can score any deals in all of them. And uh, one of those deals maybe appears to be somewhat less likely. Early, early, early this morning, President Trump uh, kind of released a tweet storm about the conversations going on in China. And he said, among other things, that China appears to be backing off their commitment to buy U.S. agricultural products. We've definitely seen that, even though shipments have ticked up here over the last week of soybeans. 
Um, and he also said it appears that China might be just trying to wait him out and hope for perhaps a different president in 2020. However, he then said, quote, this was a tweet. The problem with them waiting is that if and when I win, the deal that they will get will be much tougher than what we are negotiating now or no deal at all. And uh, that came out, you know, just as the trade talks were beginning in Shanghai. And uh, that kind of put uh, put a lot of markets on edge, particularly on the equity side. But we definitely saw some uh, bear signals flow into the grains as well, as it's just one more negative headline about what could or could not happen with China. Yes, and we I, I was reading a piece on Reuters today that said the U.S. really still hasn't done anything to clarify what U.S. companies can and can't sell to those blacklisted Chinese telecommunications companies um, because of the Huawei. Is that how I, am I pronouncing that correctly? Huawei, I think. Huawei, yes, because of the Huawei issues. So that's okay. Uh, so just a lot of uncertainty. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've I think we've had a little too much uncertainty for these trade talks, especially with China. Absolutely. These talks have been at 90% complete for the better part of 18 months. I think we're ready to see it's time to either fish or cut bait, to poop or get off the pot, to bring it back to an earlier metaphor. I've heard of all of those. Mm-hmm. Well, good for you, Delaney. You're yeah. getting out there more. Yeah, You're thanks. meeting with the people. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, actually, speaking of uh, poop or get off the pot, <laughs> Bayer made an announcement earlier today. They have gotten off the pot with regard to Nema Strike, the Monsanto product that Bear acquired in their acquisition of uh, Monsanto. Um, their plan was to, in 2020, begin releasing Nema Strike as a seed treatment for corn, cotton, and soybeans. But they've decided that they are not going to make it broadly available. They said there were enough concerns with skin irritation in the folks that handle the product that it's not worth the release. It's not worth, I'm guessing they're looking at it in the context of these roundup lawsuits that are ongoing, and they're, they're just trying to save the headache. So NEMA strike, despite the fact they call it a technological breakthrough and a game changer uh, will not be released broadly. It does sound like they're going to continue to offer it perhaps on a trial basis. Maybe they're working on different formulations, but uh, you won't be able to get NEMA strike next year to uh, deal with, uh, with the nematodes. All right. Something we'll keep an eye on then. Yeah. Yep. Well, you know, it's, it's done, done and done. But uh, we'll see if they uh, maybe get it revised. It, it well, sounds right. like they're still open to 2021, perhaps, if they can address these uh, rashes or skin irritation issues that uh, are claimed to be caused. Okay. Well, yesterday we had the national crop conditions released, and we're showing that we're well behind where we've been compared to 2018 and years prior, the NAS services on Monday said that 58% of the planted corn crop and 54% of the planted soybean crop this year are in good or excellent conditions compared to 72 and 70% at this point last year. However, for our cotton producing friends, their crop is looking significantly better and at 61% of this year's crop rated good or excellent up from 43% in 2018. All right. And that was in cotton. Yes. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
Well, yeah, we'll continue to watch that. You know, the market definitely pays attention to those crop condition ratings. Mm-hmm. Although now, as we heard from Brian Split yesterday, listeners tune into our market conversation yesterday if you haven't yet. Uh, you know, especially on the soybean side, yeah, the, the focus is turning to the future in the futures market as we'll be watching for weather. Yes, it will. It will. And uh, that's on U.S. soybeans. There is news coming out of Argentina with regard to their soybean meal. Um, it was announced today, actually Reuters has this exclusive exclusive story, that a Chinese delegation is set to visit Argentina in August to begin inspecting soy meal crushing plants. Uh, the Argentinian government made this announcement. Uh, the officials told Reuters this earlier today. And this would be the first step in the process to get Argentinian meal directly into China. China has been a huge buyer of whole beans, both from the U.S., from Brazil, and from Argentina. But Argentina's real niche is in processing and then exporting meal. They are the world's number one soy meal exporter. And China has never wanted to buy the meal directly from Argentina before. They've wanted to try to protect their own crushing facilities. But with the uncertainty, given the U.S. trade situation and, you know, maybe not having beans out of the U.S. again available to them next year – they might be looking at Argentina as a place to secure Mm. already processed meal. And the Argentinians are understandably very excited about this. And uh, I'm sure it'll be a long process. I don't think we'll have any announcements in August. But uh, certainly seems as though this could be ready to rock and roll by the time South American harvest rolls around in March. All right. Madison, what what else do you have for news today? Well, kind of a circling back to the crop conditions report, they had an article come out from from the New York Times, and we had an interview on it, I want to say like a week or two ago, maybe, um, about the irrigation system that actually breached in Nebraska, in western Nebraska, and I thought this was kind of crazy. It was like over a hundred years old, I think, and a tunnel collapsed. Um, through one of their canals that is now leaving almost over 100,000 acres of farmland without water because in that area of um, the Midwest, they really don't get a lot of rain during the summer and soil is starting to kind of crack. It's getting so dry. But in Nebraska alone, around $50 million in crops is at stake because of this irrigation Mm -hmm. breach. And I don't think we really touched on it in that interview. I, of course, didn't go back to see which specific um, episode that was. But um, I thought the just how big of an impact this had was kind of crazy, especially since Nebraska had all the issues with flooding earlier on. And even... Once they add up all of the damage with livestock and crops, and then now this irrigation issue, Nebraska could be seeing about $840 million in losses. Oh, geez. Those are some big yeah. numbers. Nebraska's having a rough yeah. year. Rough I year. Know. I know. They certainly are. Well, it was a rough day in the markets from the producer's perspective. Delaney, do you have any other news or should we jump into the markets before our Tech Tuesday conversation? You know, I did have one other thing I just want to mention here. We really haven't seen Administrator Wheeler there at the EPA come out one way or the other in favor of renewable fuels, not in favor of it. We're we're kind of in the dark of where exactly he sits on that, but 
He defended the agency's expanded use of those small refiner waivers from the country's biofuel law during a closed-door meeting this week, or end of last week, with farm state senators. And he argued that the program has no negative impact on ethanol demand, according to four different sources of knowledge of this closed-door meeting. So shenanigans. Of course, it has impact. Anytime you're reducing demand, you're having an impact. Our friend, Dr. Scott Irwin, has reviewed this in detail. And frankly, I'm going to trust Dr. Irwin on this issue. And like I said, it was a closed door meeting. So this is anonymous sources. So take that with what you will. But uh, this is really kind of the first time we've seen him make comments that we're assuming he actually made um, on these issues. Yeah, and if these comments are accurate, and you make a good point there, it's tough to rely on anonymous sources on this kind of thing. But if they're accurate, Delaney, I got to say, we know where uh, Wheeler stands on this issue. Right, exactly. Yeah, that's frustrating. It is. Um, Well, all right, you know, we could use something to uh, help the corn market out. We did not get it today, although we did close above the level that Brian Split was talking about yesterday, so... Let's just see where we wrapped up for the day. Madison, how's that sound? Sounds great. Fantastic. Well, let's dive into the markets. And folks, our markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. Reminder, I am part of the Zaner Group now. So if you want to pick my brain for what it's worth or meet with a competent broker, give us a shout. You can reach us at 312-277-0050. And we'll be more than willing to help you manage your marketing risk. And we got some risk in the markets today. September corn down five and three quarters at 4.11 and a quarter. December down six cents to finish the day at 4.21 even. In soybeans, the September contract was down seven and a quarter at 8.84 and a quarter, with November down seven and a half, closing the day below nine dollars. Finished at 8.96 and three quarters. Wheat pulled back a lot of yesterday's rally. The September contract, Chicago wheat was down six and a quarter at 4.97 and a quarter. The December down five and a half, wrapped the day at 5.03. And in livestock, mixed trade in the cattle complex with live cattle a little lower and feeder cattle actually catching a bit of a bid. In live cattle, the August contract was down 55 cents at 108.10. The October was down 37 and a half to close at 109.07.50. In feeders, the August contract up 80 cents. Closed 143.10 with September up a dollar twenty-two and a half, wrapping the day at 144.05. And lean hogs, that sell-off has continued. The August contract was down two dollars twelve and a half cents at 82.30. The October down 245, closing at an even $74. Jumping into the dairy market, we've got some mixed trade today with the July, admittedly. Just about at expiration. It was up three cents at 1750. The August down 16 to close the day at 1745. And the September down 17 cents, finishing it up at 1777. Delaney, why don't you tell us who we're talking to for our hashtag Tech Tuesday discussion? I'd love to, Mike. We are talking with Sigfox Canada, who is a technology company using the Internet of Things and more specifically livestock callers, which work with that Internet of Things. Well, for today's Tech Tuesday interview, we're going to be talking about the Internet of Things with Kent Rawlings, who is the president of Sigfox Canada. Kent, first of all, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. So tell us here, Sigfox Canada, you guys are located up there. Obviously in Canada, you're out of Toronto. 
what are you guys doing to work within this space of internet of things? And I guess maybe to take a step back, what is the internet of things? So internet of things is a communication platform designed to allow uh, various devices and sensors to communicate their information back to the end users that want to use that information to drive efficiency in whatever it is that they're doing, be it farming, be it manufacturing, be it uh, households, etc. So what is Sigfox's role in the IoT, as the cool kids call the Internet of Things? <laughs> so Sigfox is originally a Paris, France-based company um, that began in 2010, and they had the vision to build a global IoT network um, that would allow any devices to seamlessly connect um, and provide their information back to the, the end user. Uh, the end goal was really to connect any device, any sensor for any application uh, using low power at a low cost and deliver that information very efficiently back to the end user. Sigfox Canada is the licensee of that technology in Canada, and we are building a national IoT network. Um, and currently we cover right from Vancouver, British Columbia to St. John's, Newfoundland. So we're covered coast to coast uh, in major cities and some rural areas with our IoT network. Yeah, and the thing I think we really wanted to dive right into you with here is talking about your Internet of Things network that obviously applies specifically to rural America. Kent, tell me a little bit about the smart livestock callers and how that works within your Internet of Things. Okay. So the first important thing to understand about the technology that we use at SigFox is we use radio frequency technology. Um, and the nature of radio frequency it is, is that it travels very far. Um, and the way SigFox has designed their technology allows it to listen for very specific signals. Um, and so we can, out in a rural area, in a farm area, one of our base stations could easily cover an area of 15 to 20 kilometers in distance. Um, and that would be uh, quite different from what a cellular type technology would be able to do. Why is that important for livestock? That's important for livestock because obviously the, the grazing areas are quite large um, and they may or may not necessarily be uh, within range of a cellular tower. The SigFox technology could be installed um, in an individual farm because it's uh, relatively inexpensive to install and provide the farmer with this excellent coverage. That means any device uh, that the farmer wishes to deploy would be able to be uh, receive their signal, um, regardless of whether they're a cell coverage or not, um, and that information would be communicated over the internet back, back to the uh, farmer. As it relates to cows, uh, we have a specific tracking device that is secured around the cow's neck um, that can be used to track uh, the cow's location uh, via GPS, so we'll know exactly where the cow might be in the farm. Uh, we can set up uh, parameters, uh, what are called geofences, uh, which effectively means so long as the cow's within this given area, uh, that's fine, just continue to communicate. But should the cow stray outside of a specific area, send a notification, be it a text, SMS, or an alert on, uh, on a system uh, to the farmer to say, hey, this, this cow's moved beyond the allowable area and track it back. 
Um, and the devices can even go as far as tracking the cow's temperature, his movement, his heart rate, um, to know exactly what's going on with all livestock um, in uh, semi-real time uh, to give them better visibility to, to exactly what's going on in the field. It's fascinating. And, you know, when you talk about the geofencing, my mind goes to uh, my mom has an invisible fence set up for her dog. And, uh, you know, the dog wears a shock collar. And if the dog gets close to the fence, it shocks. Can we put shock collars on cattle? Um, you could put shock collars on cattle. <laughs> I've not seen that application. Um, and I'm not sure how much of a shock you would need to stop the cow. Uh, <laughs> that may be something that requires further investigation. Right. Absolutely. Now, when when you think about these collars being out there with this, with the trackable data, um, what kind of a price point do you anticipate uh, this technology being available to uh, farmers at? Well, there's there's three different things involved in providing the solution. The first is the collar. Uh, so the collar manufacturer, uh, we've seen one in the uh, $150 uh, U.S. range. Uh, for a collar, but those prices are continually become down as uh, demand increases. Uh, then you would have what where we make our money is on the connectivity, so the actual sending and receiving of that signal, which is uh, think of it as a dollar per month or less uh, to be able to send and receive that signal per device. And then you'd have the interface platform, and that can come in a variety of ways uh, depending on what the farmer is looking to do. Uh, much of farming is is automated already, so this could build into an existing system, or they may say, you know what, we just want the system to track our cows, so provide us a separate interface that I can see exactly where all my cows are um, in one in one application. So, Ken, you, you're talking a lot about cattle, obviously, but there are a lot of different livestock grown across North America. Do they need different types of these collars if I am going to use it on my goat or sheep herd versus my cattle herd? And how does the information change based on the livestock that you are using the collar with? Uh, the information remains relatively the same. The device itself would be slightly modified for, for size and the uh, uh, call it apparatus used to to attach the device to the to the livestock. Um, obviously, if you're you know dealing with a chicken, it's going to be smaller um, than one you would put on a sheep or a cow uh, from that perspective. So we really we work with the device manufacturers to find the uh, to find the right solution um, and and figure that out. The information that you can receive is really what does the what is the farmer looking to get? Um, device manufacturers can. Uh, modify their uh, devices pretty quickly um, over a course of months to be able to uh, measure and monitor whatever it is required from uh, from the farmer. It's fascinating to watch this technology grow and to see the number of use cases for the Internet of Things just explode. Um, another thing I wanted to touch on or talk to you about was with the, the frequency that you guys are using, um, it, are there concerns about, I guess, do things need to be line of sight? Uh, no, they do not need to be line of sight. Wow. Um, so it is a it is a radio frequency signal. Um, so if you think about it, uh, anywhere you listen to an AM radio, it, it's effectively a similar uh, bandwidth. Uh, we run on the 902 megahertz uh, spectrum here in Canada, which is very similar to the 700 
680 megahertz spectrum that an AM radio station would run on. It's fascinating. So very good, what are called propagation characteristics, meaning it can penetrate buildings, it can go uh, deep within barns. Um, you know, mountains are a bit of an issue, but uh, that all comes down to how the network's deployed then. So for a grower who's interested in putting this technology to use on the farm, their only real investment besides the ongoing connectivity costs is the base station. Is that correct? Uh, Correct. And depending on where we are and what their use case is, it may make economical sense for us to deploy the base station on their behalf. Um, But if it was a fairly isolated place, um, you know, the max cost for a base station is going to be a few thousand dollars. Um, but we also have micro and mini base stations, which would uh, take the price for deployment under $1,000. The range is a little bit less, but if you had a one or two kilometer uh, distance of farm, uh, these devices would be more than sufficient to to track. Do you see, Kent, a, a specific herd size and cattle or goats or sheep where this type of system really makes sense? Is there, I guess, is there a sweet spot for the number of livestock or number of head that you use this type of smart collar with? Uh, there's really not. Uh, we are actually working with um, a company in, in Alberta that's looking to track about 10,000 head of cattle. Um, and they're going to be testing our, our platform out here in the, in the coming months. Oh, wow. Um, but there is no real, um, no real minimum that, that we'd suggest. Obviously, if you have three cows, does it make economic sense to deploy, you know, a thousand dollar base station to track three cows? Probably not. Um, but the important piece to remember is it's not just the tracking of the cattle. So once that base station is deployed, you can track anything else that you wanted to on the farm, such as where my silos at, what's the temperature in the barn, uh, smoke detectors, has a door open or closed, is the gate to the uh, opened or closed. Um, so there's additional sensors that can track a variety of different information that would be valuable to the, to the farmer. This has been really fascinating, and I know we've got a lot of livestock producers that listen to the podcast. Kent, if they have other questions about the Internet of Things or more specifically these livestock callers and how they could set them up for their operations, where can they go for more information? Uh, They can reach the SIGFOX Canada website or the SIGFOX USA website, depending on where they're located, Um, or they could reach out to me directly at Kent. Dot Rawlings at sigfoxcanada.com and I can direct them to the, uh, the appropriate place based on their, their question and the information they're looking for. Awesome. Kent, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Enjoyed being on. All right. Well, big thanks to Kent for taking the time to chat with us. Always a neat discussion. It's going to be fascinating to watch the tools that are available to farmers, Madison, as we go here into the future. Yes, it definitely is, Mike. It's kind of crazy how much um, just the technology in agriculture has grown, especially in the past, like, 10 years, really. Absolutely. You know, one of the things that has emerged is the availability of podcasts. In Madison, if our listeners <laughs> want to get caught up on any past episodes, where should they go to do so? Well, Mike, listeners can always find us at our website on globalagnetwork.com slash agnewsdaily. But if they want to kind of get in contact with us, chat about really anything under the sun, they can always find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at agnewsdaily and really stay caught up on everything there. 
That sounds perfect. Listeners, be sure to check it out and check out the other podcasts on the Global Ag Network. There are some fantastic content providers, very educated folks in the industry. With all of that being said, Madison, what do you say? Should we let the people go? Let's let them go. Let's let them go.